Good morning, folks. It's Rob Timmings here, one of the nurse educators on the team here at Affinity Clinical Education. This morning, it is the 1st of September, first day of spring. So happy spring, everyone. Let's hope uh, spring is a little bit kinder to us than uh, than was uh, the first half of two, uh, 2020, International Year of the Nurse and Midwife this year. Uh, well, hasn't it been a whirlwind journey so far? And just things don't seem to be settling down with this whole COVID mess that we find ourselves in. We've got nurses that are going to Tasmania and Western Australia, and we're placing them in Victoria and Queensland, of course, and, and um, New South Wales. We have got so many placements um, that we're, we're looking to recruit nurses for. So if you're listening to this podcast for the first time and you've got some interest in uh, maybe having a bit of a travel gig, getting away from those big cities where all those people with nasty viruses are, then, uh, then, then perhaps uh, hit Affinity Clinical uh, affinity nursing recruitment up, and uh, and uh, one of our let one of our placement specialists talk you through uh, your options uh, and all your wonderful incentives. Today, as far as education is concerned, I thought that we would uh, we go right back to basics and have a little bit of a conversation about primary assessment. The primary assessment is the very first assessment that we're going to do for patients when um, when we first come into contact with them. It's kind of like the real nuts and bolts emergency assessment that we're going to perform on any and every patient. Whether you're working in a ward type scenario and you've just had clinical handover and you've gone out to meet your six or eight patients or whatever your allocations are, one of the very first things you're going to do is, is, is just check signs of life with your patients, aren't you? You're going to walk out and you're going to introduce yourself to your patient and hopefully all your patients will turn and smile at you and say, good morning. And just in that instant blink of a moment, we can get a bit of a gauge as to whether somebody's got an open airway and whether they're breathing okay and what they, what they, you know, that they've got some circulation and their level of consciousness, and that, in a nutshell, really is what primary assessment is. We divide it up into the first four letters of the alphabet, uh, so airway, breathing, circulation, and the D is the disability. That's the level of consciousness. Now. There's been a lot written on primary assessment over the years, and primary assessment um, reveals itself through many platforms uh, that you're no doubt familiar with. So when we talk about primary assessment from an emergency point of view, uh, the DRS-ABCD model is built on the primary assessment. It's a little bit different because the DRS-ABCD actually prioritises level of consciousness before airway. So it's, what is it, danger, response, that's your level of consciousness. So response, uh, send for help, airway, breathing, um, compressions, and then defibrillation. So that places the D in that ABCD uh, sort of higher up in, in terms of priority. When we have a look at a pre-hospital or a military medic type setting, then the march approach is often used where massive hemorrhage takes uh, a higher a higher priority than airway does. So M-A-R-C-H is, is uh, massive, hemorrhage, uh, massive hemorrhage and then airway. And then C is circulation and um, 
uh, M-A-R, no, no, R is respiratory and C is uh, circulation. And then we move down to H, which is the head to toe assessment. So M-A-R-C-H kind of places uh, circulation or, or massive bleeding in the context of a pre-hospital trauma type scenario. Uh, into a higher priority, and then we come to the age-old medical model that we uh, that perhaps most of us are familiar with, uh, and that medical model is just simply ABCD, which is airway, breathing, circulation, and disability. So as I track through these ABCDs in this short podcast, what I really wanted to make sure that I emphasise right at the very beginning is that in no way am I saying airway is your highest priority. Because we've just established from other models that are in existence around the, around the world and around the country that airway is not always the highest priority. They are all of equal priority. Airway, breathing, circulation and level of consciousness all have a very high yield as far as life threat is concerned. Uh, and so whilst I might spruik it as airway, then breathing, then circulation, then disability, think of it as a circular model. Uh, and that it really doesn't matter where you start as long as you cover all four within the first few um, seconds to minutes of engaging with uh, any patient. So just for convenience, we're going to stay alphabetical. Let's stay with a, uh, start with A for airway. So we're looking at A for airway. It's the first letter of the alphabet. And being the first letter of the alphabet, we're, we are reminded of the number one. So the number one, there's one question we have about A for airway, and that is, is it patent? You want to know whether somebody's airway is open and patent. So think about what's going to block somebody's airway. It's only going to fall into one of three categories. It's going to be wet and sloppy. So think of blood and secretions and vomitus and sputum and wet and sloppy. Uh, it's going to be hard and chunky. So it could be broken teeth or bits of glass or something that was in the patient's mouth when they uh, when they had their injury or their accident. So it could be pieces of plastic. It might be a lolly. It could be a coin. Children are forever putting things in their mouth and it gets sort of stuck in their airway. So hard and chunky. Or it could be soft and fleshy. And soft and fleshy would remind us of uh, some edema, like a like like an airway swelling from an anaphylactic event or or an allergic event, um, some upper airway swelling from um, from disorders like uh, like croup, or uh, or pharyngitis or tonsillitis even, severe tonsillitis like a quinsy, as an example, a peritonsillar abscess. So when we have a look at somebody's airway, we're looking for those three categories of, of potential obstruction. Uh, wet and sloppy, hard and chunky, soft and fleshy. The important part of the important thing to remember about primary assessment is that we need to fix the problem when we find the problem. We don't do airway breathing circulation and disability assessment without intervening. We actually intervene at the same time that we're doing assessment. So of course, if somebody's got uh, liquids in their airway that potentially could cause obstruction, then if we would suction them out. And the, a yanker sucker or a rigid tonsil tip sucker would, would be a, a, the perfect device. Uh, if it's uh, some sort of a solid obstruction, something hard and chunky, then it's absolutely reasonable to uh, to reach in with some, some artery forceps or McGill's forceps are probably the best tool to use, the McGill's forceps. And, and um, under direct vision, see if we can't remove uh, any kind of an obstruction that might be in their mouth, clearing anything that they might have in their mouth. 
Uh, ask the patient to spit it out, of course. Uh, but if they're unconscious, we need to remove it for them, don't we? And with regards to uh, uh, soft and fleshy, well, soft and fleshy can be a little bit more challenging. Um, we certainly have within our scope of practice as nurses to place in oropharyngeal uh, airway devices. So um, a, a common name for those is the Goodell's airway. Uh, alternatively, nasopharyngeal airways. Um, some nurses have been trained to and are feeling confident to insert laryngeal masks in patients who are unconscious. So that certainly uh, can help keep the tongue forward and um, in, a, in a position where they're less likely to obstruct from their tongue. So wet and sloppy, hard and chunky, soft and fleshy, done and dusted. B. B is the second letter of the alphabet. Reminds us of number two. There's only two questions I have about B and that is, are you breathing and is your breathing effective? So we want to have a look at, well, can we see any spontaneous attempt for respirations? Uh, does the patient have rise and fall of their chest? When we're looking at competence of their breathing. We're looking for symmetry. Does the chest rise and fall equally on the left as it does on the right? If we had a stethoscope, can we hear breath sounds on the left and the right as equal, or is there an inequality there? Is the patient using accessory muscles? You know, if they're using all of their intercostal muscles and their shoulder muscles and their abdominal muscles, then that's going to make the patient uh, very, very tired and exhausted. People can only use accessory muscles for a finite period of time before sheer exhaustion takes them into a into that ugly place of respiratory uh, respiratory arrest. Particularly elderly patients and children, they just don't have the energy reserves to to, to keep using accessory muscles to breathe. So is the patient using accessory muscles? What's the patient's position? Are they positioned in a position that maximizes their air entry? Have they got that classic sitting up, leaning forward, tripoded position? Is there a cough? Count their respiratory rate. Is it elevated? Have a look at the depth of their breathing. And when Having a look at their throat, can you can you see their trachea sitting in the midline position? A, a wildly displaced trachea may be a serious indicator of an underlying condition like a like a pneumothorax or a serious pneumothorax developing into a tension. With B for breathing, we need to make the determination as to whether breathing is adequate. And if it's not adequate, of course, providing support for breathing. That would be raising the alarm and the red flag for um, for potentially having to intubate the patient or assist with their respirations, even on a temporary measure, using a bag valve mask device. Anyone that's got difficulty with their breathing probably needs to be assisted with the with the, the mechanics of being ventilated, whether that's a bag valve mask device or the insertion of an endotracheal tube and being placed on a ventilator needs to be determined at the time. But this is a state of emergency, isn't it? One other thing about breathing is we need to determine the need for oxygen. Now, in the past, we would have thrown oxygen on anyone that was struggling to breathe. Now, we only wait for somebody to desaturate. If they're desaturated below 90%, then it is absolutely reasonable to place oxygen on the patient, enough oxygen on the patient to bring their saturations back up above 93. So somewhere between 94 and 96 is our target 
saturations of 94 to 96 is absolutely spot on. That's what we're targeting for. We should be thinking about putting oxygen on, therefore, if anybody is saturating below that 93 mark. And we should be considering taking oxygen off or weaning them off the oxygen if their saturations are above 96. We now know that causes harm. So consider the use of oxygen. Don't just mandate its use because that's a little bit old-fashioned and harmful for the patient. Um, let's talk about C. C is circulation, third letter of the alphabet, and three things that we're going to think about with C. Uh, with C, we certainly want to take a patient's pulse, and I'm a real fan of taking the patient's pulse, uh, radial pulse, but also taking the patient's carotid pulse, particularly if they're really unwell. So if your patient looks to be in a state of altered consciousness, then taking their carotid pulse as well as their radial pulse. Uh, is absolutely indicated. Of course, the DRS-ABCD model, which is really built for a lay audience, has removed the pulse check in a patient who may be in cardiac arrest. And whilst I'd still maintain that that's reasonable, uh, for patients who aren't obviously in cardiac arrest, a pulse check is very much a clinical skill and a clinical tool that we would use in the primary assessment, C for circulation. So check the patient's pulse. We're checking it for its tone. We want to know, is it a good, strong pulse, or is it a weak and thready pulse? We want to have a, have a um, count its rate. Is the patient's pulse rate within a normal range? In adults, that would be 60 to 100 beats per minute. So that's the first part of the pulse check. Uh, the second part is to have a look at the skin indicators for circulation. So have a look at things like capillary refill and have a look at their skin. Pink mucous membranes, moist pink mucous membranes is always good. Remember pink is good and blue is bad. So does the patient have any evidence of cyanosis? Are they ashen in colour? Is there, is there pallor? Is the patient in shock? Pale, cold, clammy, tachycardia are your classic, your classic cardinal signs of shock. The third thing that we could be looking at, and this is more in the context, I guess, of a patient with um, uh, who has a severe state of trauma, would be would be bleeding. Is there any uncontrolled external bleeding? Can you look around the body very very quickly and see if there's any puddles or pools of blood or any vessels or injuries that are actively bleeding? And of course, if they are, then we would need to immediately instigate measures to stop that bleeding. Direct pressure, elevation, uh, bandage, or or put some sort of a combine or some sort of a dressing in place to be able to to stem that blood loss. So there are three components of C for circulation, pulse check, skin check, and bleeding check. The last in our primary assessment then is our D for disability, the fourth letter of the alphabet. Uh, and that's nice and convenient because there's four parts uh, in assessing D with D for disability, a very basic overview. Of course, we're not doing a whole formal Glasgow Coma score and pupil check and you know neurovascular observations at this point. But I do want to know if my patient's conscious or not. So are they A, awake and alert? Are they V, responding to my voice? In other words, if they don't look awake when you approach them, if you spoke their name or you spoke to that patient, did they wake up? Did they open their eyes? Are they P, responding to noxious stimulus or pain? Or are they completely U, unresponsive? So that score or scale is the AVPU, AVPU. 
It would be true to say if somebody was an A or a V, they can maintain their own airway. They're awake enough to maintain their own airway if they score an A or a V on that AVPOO scale. But if they score a P or a U, then they really have challenges in protecting their own airway. And for that reason, we would need to consider rolling that patient onto the side or putting some sort of an airway adjunct, like a Goodell's in place, if they're a P or a U. So we like to say if they're an A or a V, they're quite in a safe place. If they're a P or a U, then they're in the poo. And that would suggest that we need to help them to protect their airway. Well, that's it from me. A very quick little 17-minute session, 16, 17-minute session, just looking at primary assessment. Um, have a talk to your um, your affinity nursing recruitment um, uh, client support officer and uh, and to get access to our education portal. We've got some great education, including a nice little video presentation of what we've just been through for primary assessment. Uh, my name's Rob Timmings, one of the uh, the nurse educators here at Affinity Clinical Education, and, uh, and I really look forward to bringing some stuff uh, to you in the very near future. See you later, folks. Bye.